world, isn't it? What just went on. And um, it's a strange thing. Or is it? In that, what has gone on? On one level, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. You know, it's a public declaration of a, of a heartfelt belief. And we understand that, I think, don't we? That is, we make all sorts of public declarations ourselves to make known what we believe in our hearts to be true. I'll give you a kind of a more trivial example that may be happening in a few weeks' time. Think of the, the Diamond Jubilee as, a, as it approaches. I guess a number of us will want to show our allegiance um, to our Queen, our appreciation of her, by some form of public declaration. Now, that may be just going along to the local street party and having a few volivons or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it may be waving a union jacket at an appropriate time or watching events on the television. Or maybe you might even go up to the River Thames and watch the Queen go down on that extraordinarily expensive barge that they've, they've bought. You know, whatever. All of those things are public declarations of a heartfelt belief. That is, our actions will signify... Well, an inward reality that many of us know and feel. That is, that the Queen's done a reasonable job. That she's a, she's a good monarch. And we want to declare that publicly. I'll go to a more extreme example. If any of you have ever been in the SAS, and I'm not sure if you have. But um, <laughs> if you join the SAS and you, go, and you go on tour and so on, you have the opportunity to have the SAS um, tattoo emblazoned or scarred onto your forearm. Now, you know, it's another example. That is, it demonstrates that you are tough. You are one of the elite forces of the 21st Regiment of the British Army. You know, it's an outward sign of an inward reality of who you are, what you believe in. And baptism, in one obvious way, is just that. It's an outward sign of a work that has gone on inside someone's heart. Therefore, today, it is not a private occasion we do not baptise, you know, away from everyone else. Intentionally, Rosie is saying to all of you gathered here today, this is me. This is what I believe in. This is what I am truly inside. This is what is in my heart. And I'm even prepared to go through that to show you and demonstrate to you that that is what I believe now, baptism is more than that. It's an obedience to what God has shown us in his word. And God promises to bless that obedience as we publicly declare our faith. But simply, it is an outward sign of an inward, heartfelt belief. But what does baptism tell us? That is, what should you leave here knowing that you didn't know before you came in? Uh, in one sense, what is this evening, this event, communicating to you? And I want to see, in just very simple terms tonight, I've put those two questions down on your sheet. I want to show what baptism tells us. Firstly, about the one who's been baptised, and that's tonight, it's Rosie. But secondly, I also want to show us what baptism tells us about God. What is God communicating to us tonight? about himself from what we've just seen and what we've heard. We've had this little short passage read from, 
from Titus there. And we're going to look at that because I think it will help us answer those two questions. But not just in, in what I think, but from what God thinks. And he's going to show us in his word. And I'd like you to look at that as we look at that more carefully in, in just one moment. And we do that here at Christ Church Hillsville because as you open the Bible, God is speaking. He's been so kind and generous to us to make himself and his character clear to us through these pages. So do keep it open. What we've actually got in front of you is a letter. And it's a letter uh, to a young church in Crete. Many of you have been there, I'm sure, on holiday, just southeast of uh, the, the bottom tip of Greece. And a, a Mediterranean island there. And it's from one of Jesus' appointed uh, workers. You might have heard the term apostle. That's what Paul was. He was an apostle. And that is who is writing this letter to this young church in Crete. Now, Paul, he's an interesting chap because he wants absolutely hated Christians. So much so that he, he persecuted them and, and killed many. But then God revealed himself to Paul. And at that moment, Paul believed and trusted that God was God. And he devoted his life to God and was appointed by God. And, and what we're reading here is a letter of which Paul has um, set up a church. And he's now writing to them to encourage the leader of that church, Titus. And we have the privilege of looking in on this letter. Hearing God speak through Paul to this small, exciting church in what was a very secular place, Crete, at that time. So we're going to look at these um, two questions. We're going to look at this letter to help us answer those two questions. So let's turn to the first question. What does baptism tell us about the one being baptised? Now before I get to the text of what we're looking at in the Bible, let's just think about that in human terms, in social terms, just for a moment. What does it tell us about the person, Rosie here? It tells us, doesn't it, that she's willing to look quite a bit odd, a bit weird, for something that she really believes in. Now, in some cultures, that wouldn't mean much, would it? But in our culture, in our society, where we often feel so acutely self-conscious, that I don't think should be overlooked. Because for most today, it takes us at least a few shots, doesn't it? Or a few pints to get us into a, you know, to have enough courage to do anything that is countercultural, that will make you stand out from the crowd. What you've seen tonight is extraordinary in our culture. For that reason alone. And please note, I, although she said I wrote the questions and all that kind of stuff, it, it was, I ripped them away. It's, it's her. This is what, there's no hint of kind of, kind of radicalization here or kind of cultural or manipula, manipulation. Rosie has spent hours, months, thinking about this herself. Looking at God's word, the Bible, investigating Jesus and his character and his claims. And she has come to the conclusion in her heart and mind that she wanted to get baptised to signify what she believes. Is this radical? Yes, it is. Because it takes a huge amount of guts to do. But this is not radical because Rosie has been radicalised in the pejorative use of that term today. Now that is purely a human observation, but what does God, through his word, the Bible, tell us? Uh, and what does, about baptism, what it communicates about Rosie? Remember, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. And that reality, as we see in this text, is really a transformation. A change of one's heart and one's mind. And it's described here in this passage we heard. And if you look there, 
just turn your eyes down if you can to me, with me, at verse 5. You'll see the term there, washing. Now we know that from the rest of the Bible, it's used a number of other occasions, that washing basically meant baptism. That was the way it's used, and that's why this passage is so helpful for us tonight. But that change has occurred, as we see in this passage, and the washing signifies the change that has gone on, and it seals it in the person's heart that is rosy tonight. And that change is spelt out in this passage in terms of a transformation. I'll I'll walk you through it in a moment, but from what they were in the past, you see that in the first few verses, to what they have become in the present, and what they look forward to in the future. There's a past element, there's a present element, there's a future element in this passage. So as someone is baptised, we look back to a life that, as Rosie said, ignored God. It may have been a fulfilling life to some degree, and it may be a very self-satisfied life, but it was lived with very little reference or no reference to God. And that life is actually represented, if you cast your eyes down, in verse 3 of our passage, and it's quite shocking. Look with me at it, if you can. Look what it says. At one time, that is, he's pointing back to the past, we too, remember, Paul is writing to the Christians in Crete, we too, that is, referring to Christians, We too were foolish. It's quite shocking language, isn't it? Now, hear me right here. He's not saying people who aren't Christians are dumb. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that literally they are lacking sense about God. Go on, this is disobedient. That is just not wanting to listen to God. Follow God. Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Now, hear this right. One thing that so many Christians say that when when they become Christians is that becoming Christian doesn't mean that suddenly you lose any kind of passion in your life or desire for pleasure in any way, shape, or form. We still want to have a nice glass of red wine, and we still enjoy sex. Surprisingly enough, we we actually quite like talking about that. That's fine in the context of the way that God, you know, has has mapped it out. But it does mean. That we're not enslaved by those things anymore. And many Christians will testify. When you become a Christian. It just means you have the ability to say no. When you know saying no is good for you. And gives pleasure to God. You're no longer enslaved. You have the ability to say no. That verse goes on, and it's, it's definitely an expose of my heart. Not everything applies, so don't look at it and say, oh, well, I'm not that, so I discount everything. Not everything applies to each of us directly, but, and to the same degree. But I guess every single one of us will hear resonances of ourselves, won't we, in verse 3, to some degree. I, I, I know, I look at malice, and malice is basically wishing evil on others, isn't it? And, yeah, maybe not, but envy, you see the next one there? Well, I'm pretty good at that. And I think it's fairly endemic in our culture. A guy bought a Porsche on our road the other day. And he drove in it. I thought, I just want to scratch that thing. I mean, it's like, oh dear. I wish I had one of them. You know, I was so envious. It's really sad, isn't it? Someone gets a bigger house, the bigger promotion, the bigger car. Yeah, envy. And we can sometimes try and suppress the reality of our lives... But when you stand before an all-knowing, ever-seeing God, there's no hiding, you know. And how frightening would it be? I mean, I 
I just imagine that someone might send me one day a YouTube clip of the whole of my life mapped out in front of me. I could click on it and I could see my whole, all of my motives, all of my actions, all of my thought life. Can you imagine how horrifying it would be to sit in front of the computer and see that? I'd be totally going, oh my goodness, I wouldn't even want to see it myself if I was sat on my own. Now imagine your mum sat next to you. Just to illustrate that a bit. Uh, you may know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He wrote Sherlock Holmes, yeah? You know, you know the character. He once played, a, he was a bit of a mischievous chap, and he once uh, played a trick on a, a number of his friends. He sent ten telegrams um, to a number of people, very wealthy people, all his friends, around London. And the telegram simply said this, Flee, all is revealed. Of those ten people... <laughs> Four left the country immediately. (laughs) And they never, ever returned. It was a bit of a joke and it got to to the press later on. Um, You wonder what they had to hide, don't you? Now let me kind of bring that together. Where's all this leading? One day you will stand before God. Of all the promises that occur in the Bible, the thousands of promises that have all come to fruition... There's one that remains that hasn't come to fruition. And that is that you will stand before God. And if you know probability, you'd be a silly man to bet against that. And when you do, you will have in your life this catalogue of very pleasant and charming good things that you have done. But you're not perfect, are you? And nor am I. And we don't even meet our own expectations, do we? That's why we have snooze buttons. (laughs) and we don't live up to our own standards never mind God's standards do we and Jesus said once these very famous words no one can enter the kingdom of heaven heaven, glory unless they are born again and that term is used here the term of rebirth there in verse 5 now don't worry it is a spiritual metaphor so don't worry about that but what he means is this You look at your heart, as described in verse 3, yeah? You look at your heart, and Jesus, when he said that, he's saying, that kind of heart can't be in the kingdom of heaven. My heart, as it is, on its own, can't be in the kingdom of heaven. It can't be with the all-perfect, all-powerful God in heaven for eternity, if it remains as it is. We need to be changed. And as we baptise, we look back at what, if you like, Rosie was once, as she was once before, before God. And that is not a pretty picture. It isn't in me, but I guess it's probably not in you either. And that is not to say, you must hear me clearly here, that is not to say any Christian thinks that we are perfect. We're not perfect. But the point is here, none of us, no one in this whole room can spend an eternity enjoying God forever and all his pleasure and all that goodness and love if we try and do it on our own. Our hearts and our lives, they just let us down. And it's, just get this, this is unlike any other religion in the world. Your Christian faith is utterly unique in this and in many other things, but in this certainly is. Buddhism says you've got to look to the, the eightfold path of enlightenment to, to kind of get you there. Um, you know, Islam and the five pillars. And, and atheism, in fact, you've got to deny all your senses and deny any kind of existence of God. But essentially, in all of those things, it's all about you. 
who you are, what you can do. Can you really trust yourself with your life and your death like that? The Christian faith, you see, it stands alone because it says the only way that you can be saved, the only way that you can speak of verse 3 in the past tense, as he does here, is by God intervening for us. Baptism speaks about Rosie, if you like, in the past. What she has been changed from. What she once was in the eyes of God. I'm going to clarify that now as we look to the present. And see what baptism communicates about Rosie today. Look at verse 4 with me. I think it's helpful in this, if you can. Look, it says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Let's just summarise that. Something appeared, it says. And that something saved Christians for heaven. Now verse 6 makes it clear, if you just go on. Who is the saviour? It's Christ Jesus. He's the saviour. He's the only one that can get you there. See, when Jesus appeared as a baby born in Bethlehem, he then went on and lived a perfect life. Utterly spotless, utterly blemish. None of that that we see in verse 3 was ever in Jesus' life. Even at his trial, he's got all these people vying for his blood, trying to condemn him, trying to pin something on him and say, you did that. Nothing. Not one thing could they find. Even his worst enemy. And then Jesus allowed himself, allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross of torture. To take a punishment that I deserve. Why? Because, you see, God is a just God. And he cannot overlook verse 3 in my heart. He cannot just forget the fact that I've ignored him in so many aspects of my life. He cannot forget the fact that I've been living in in his world, enjoying all the blessings of his world, without any reference to him. The Bible calls that, it kind of summarises it, you might have heard the word, the word is sin. And it needs punishing, judging. Because God is a just God. And God will punish sin fairly, it's not like me with my little boys, you know, when I get a bit heated and all that kind of stuff. I get a bit erratic, as we all do. God is a just judge. He will punish exactly as we deserve. Rightly. And eternally, because he's an eternal God. But there is an opportunity to be saved from that. And that comes in Jesus, the Saviour. And see, what baptism symbolises is that, is that Rosie is trusted. Rosie is trusted in that Saviour, Jesus. That when he died on the cross, he was doing so in her place. That is, he was taking on all the justice of God... That she deserves for all that she's done, like represented in verse 3. And he was taking it on himself. But the amazing thing about what happened on the cross, it's not only that Jesus takes that justice on himself. Also, he says, I've lived a perfect life. You have it. You have it. Counted as yours. Essentially, I describe it to my five-year-old, six-year-old, sorry. forget. It's like a swap. Is simply a swap. Jesus takes your punishment. 
and you get his righteous, perfect life counted as yours. And at the core of us, our heart and whatever mind is on, that is the only thing that is, if you like, distinguishes Rosie and Christians here from if you're here and you're not a Christian. The, the distinguishing factor is that the only difference is we can say this, as in verse 5. He saved us. He saved us. Verse 4 makes it clear, doesn't it, that in case any Christian wants to kind of show off and say, hey, look at that, we're a bit better than you guys. You know, you're not going to heaven, and so on. It's nothing to do with us. It's not because of any righteous thing that we've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. He saved us. He's done all the work. And baptism is simply a sign of that saving work that happens at that kind of heart and core level of our beings. But it will also show itself in a life that is different. And Titus is all about that. Read it later if you want to. But it's saying, you, you've been saved. Now, now live like you've been saved. Not a weird life. Actually quite an attractive life. A life with great purpose and great joy. A deep-seated joy. And a life that loves others. And serves others. And I hope you've seen that in Rosie if you're a friend here today. Baptism communicates to us all of that I just said in the present. Rosie can say because of Jesus, I'm saved. I'm saved for heaven because of what you've done on the cross. I'm secure now in a loving relationship that I can enjoy with you now, but it will last for eternity. That's the present. Let's go to the future. Verse 7 is helpful in that. Cast your eyes down there. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We've spoken about this. Rosie's mentioned it already. Let's just go to that verse. Having been made justified. Justified is simply that kind of being made right before God. Uh, Having Jesus' life being counted as yours. God just sees you as Jesus. Perfect. Spotless. It's that swap on the cross. Having been justified by that grace. Grace is just an undeserved gift of kindness, isn't it? See, as we trust in Jesus Christ, we become, therefore, qualified to become heirs. You see that there? Heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And baptism symbolises and also ratifies in the person's heart that we not only live for today, that's secularism, just living for now, but rather we live for the future too. And all that is to come, and with a sure and a certain hope. Baptism communicates to us that a change has occurred. Rosie was once, you see, defined by her life. And you may be that today. Defined by verse 3. But baptism symbolises that now, because Jesus has appeared and saved her, she is now defined by his perfect life. Before God. Because his life has been counted as hers. And as a result, she can look forward to that future eternal glory with God. She's an heir in the kingdom of God. Very quickly, and to conclude, I don't worry, the second point is much, much briefer. What does baptism tell us about God? I've, I've really mentioned a lot of this already. But let me just tell you just one big thing. Because I think it's really, really important. We've heard a bit about the justice of God. But you need to hear the other side because it's amazing. And where you're all a bit glum now, you should have a big smile on your face by the end of this bit. So let's go. Baptism tells us that God loves you probably more than you ever have dared to imagine. Why? Well, if you look at verse 3, 
there's no reason that you possess in your life of why God would love you at all. Nothing. None of us deserve absolutely anything from God. But, but verse 4 is amazing. That, that big but that starts. Isn't that lovely? But. When the kindness and the love of God our Saviour appeared. God has loved you so much that he was willing to allow his son to appear and to come and to die on a cross for you. That's how much he is, how much God loves you. I would not give my son for you. No way. But God gave his precious only son for you. So that you might know him and spend an eternity with him. See, as, as Rosie went down into the water, she was essentially saying to you, I've lived a life, like, like you see in verse 3, but that is stopping now. And what, when Rosie was going down, what God is communicating to you right then, is to saying God cannot ignore that. Because God is just. But Rosie, when she came out of the water, what baptism beautifully symbolises is that she was essentially shouting loud and clear to you. You may not have heard it, but you know, she's, saying, she's essentially saying, he saved me. And God is shouting even louder. Rosie, I absolutely love you. Because I've saved you through giving you my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. I've punished my son in your place. But what is God saying to you, my friends, tonight? Maybe you've just come here just to support Rosie. What is God saying to you tonight? Do you know what? Exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. He's saying, I love you. And he's saying, I want you to put my trust, your trust, in my son who appeared, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross to take a punishment that your sin deserves. So that if you put your trust in him, you might live with me for eternity. That is what baptism is shouting out to you about God right now. He loves you and he longs to save you through his son, the Lord Jesus. So I conclude with this question. Who are you going to trust your life and your death with? Who are you going to trust? You can trust yourself and that imperfect life, which you know you've got to some degree. You're not as bad as Pol Pot or something like that, but... You know what you're like. You're not perfect, are you? You can trust your life and your death and put it in your own hands. Or you can trust Jesus, who lived an absolutely perfect life. No one can pin anything on him. And who died on a cross to take a punishment that you, you really do deserve before an almighty and perfect God. The choice is, is yours. But Rosie's baptism tonight has shouted that loud and clear to you. Rosie today, if you like, is saying to you that she trusts Jesus. She trusts Jesus. And God is saying back to her, and God is saying back to you, that is all you need. You just need Jesus. Because he's loved you that much. 
Why don't we pray as we close? Heavenly Father, I guess for some of us that, that, that may have just washed over us and we just uh, we're just waiting for the we're waiting for the salmon at the back and to have a nice little drink and catch up with friends. Lord, but I do pray if anyone's here tonight who has just never really thought about this, but something has hit home and they think, Wow, this Jesus seems to have done more than I ever imagined. Lord May that person just be inquisitive enough, do their intelligence justice enough that they might begin to ask some more questions. And though for all of us here, we delight in tonight. It's just been amazing. Uh, We are thrilled to see Rosie baptised, to demonstrate to us that we're with her and that she is with us and mainly that we're with you because you have saved us. You've done everything that we need to be with you for eternity and glory. And we love you for that, we thank you for that, and we celebrate you tonight. You are the focus of tonight. Rosie is a very, very dim and distant second. So thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us. And we want to thank you so much for that. Amen. We're going to sing our final song tonight.